So good to be here with you to worship the Lord together on this beautiful day. Spring is right around the corner, or so I'm told. So I'm, I'm kind of ready for it now. Um, this morning, uh, it, it's, it's going to be a fun morning, but uh, I'm a little sad too because uh, we're ending something we started last year, and that is our, our study in the book of Ephesians. Uh, our study was called In Christ, as you can tell from the screens behind me. But for those of you that may not have been here when we started, we actually began on September 22nd of 2019. It was our first public service here in this building. And so uh, th- there is the nostalgia for you. As our very first uh, message was in this series here in this building. And this morning we conclude that series and if you weren't here uh, for that or any of the, uh, the messages that were given during that time, you can always go online to our church website and you can uh, listen, I believe, to all but one. I think we had some technical difficulties one week, but I think you'd be able to listen to all of the messages again if you'd like to go back and do that. But we have covered a lot of ground, and I didn't realize how much ground we really had covered uh, until I went back and I started, you know, rereading, and, and I go, wow, man, we, we did. We covered a lot. And so I, I don't know if you realize how much that we have covered uh, an incredible book, and I'm so glad that we have taken time um, to, to spend time here in the series In Christ in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 2, uh, Paul had said that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Having followed the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul really reveals to us in greater detail the nature of our struggle with evil, uh, something that was alluded to there in the video. And he now, in light of everything that he has said, he urges every Christ follower to prepare for war. Now, Paul gave us three chapters of doctrine and three chapters of practical application, and everything really culminates here in chapter 6. So what we're reading this morning is not something that uh, Paul just stumbles upon. It, it, It fits together with this book. And hopefully I can bring it all together for us. I like what C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors to which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive unhealthy interest in them. Put another way, one error that we face is seeing the devil behind everything. Every, everything that goes wrong, it's the devil's fault. The other er- opposite error is to ignore the fact that many of our struggles, if not all of them, have their roots in sin, whether it be our sin, the sin of others, or just the fact that we live in a fallen world. 
it would be foolish for us. It would, we would be naive to think that um, the things that we face, the problems and issues that we face in our homes, in our churches, and in society at large don't have spiritual roots. Everything can be traced back to the fall. In fact, from Genesis 3 onward, the world has become the battlefield for a great cosmic battle between God and Satan and good and evil. And we are in the midst of that war. And we're not merely spectators. We are participants in this spiritual war. And the sooner that we recognize that, the better. So as we look at our text this morning, um, I want us to remember something, though. As we talk about spiritual warfare, I want us to remember that the war has already been won. That's something that we, we can't forget. Christ won the war by defeating Satan at the cross. I like what Warren Wearsby said here. He says, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. There's a big difference. There are battles that still need to be fought. I mean, anyone who has studied history and, and looked at the history of warfare in particular uh, oftentimes when an enemy is defeated, sometimes the fighting becomes even more intense because they know it's, it's, a, it's over. And it's a last-ditch attempt to stave off the inevitable. And so the enemy here knows that his time is short and Satan is going to fight hard right up until the last possible moment. And we need to be prepared to face him. So how do we do that? Well, Paul tells us to be fully prepared for war. There are four things we need to do. First, we need to know our enemy. We need to know our enemy. We need to put on the whole armor of God. And we are to rely on God's power and persist in prayer. Before we go any further, let's take a moment to pray. Father, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for this uh, amazing book that you've given to us through your servant, Paul. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that, Lord, everything that we've learned up to this point, um, that, Father, we would understand it was meant and it was given to us that we might apply it to our lives. Lord, prepare us for the battle that we are uh, in, not just what lies ahead, but what we are currently in. And Father, may you receive all the glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Should you notice here the first thing that Paul tells us to do is we need to know our enemy. Now, the devil is known by many names. Here he's referred to as the devil, which is the Greek word diabolos, 
which means adversary, accuser, slanderer, schemer. In verse 16, he's referred to as the evil one. Elsewhere, the devil is referred to as Satan, the tempter, the great deceiver, the god of this world, the prince of demons, and so many other things. And although Satan is no match for God as a created being, he is an extremely powerful spiritual being. And although he is not omniscient, he is wise and cunning. And although he is not omnipresent, he has numerous demons at his disposal in a great uh, campaign organization. I figured since we're in the 2020 election year, that would be a good way of summing it up. But I think you can see that here in this passage. Look at verse 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This, this came home last night to me in a very personal way. Even as I was reviewing the message and thinking about uh, speaking on this topic today, last night I experienced this. My family experienced this. See, whatever issues, whatever problems, whatever conflict you have with other people, what this verse is saying to you is they're really not the problem. They're not the real enemy. The real enemy is the devil and all of his minions. And these forces of darkness that are arrayed against us. Yes, they use people. But we need to understand that, that when we have conflict with, with other individuals, okay, that conflict has a spiritual root. And Paul is telling us here that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. People, human beings, are not the real enemy. It is the rulers, it is the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Our warfare is not with mortal beings, it's with immortal beings that influence us and the world around us. Now, Paul uses an interesting word here for the word wrestle. It was actually a military term, and it was used in Paul's day to describe the sport of wrestling. And it means to engage in close hand-to-hand -hand combat. So the picture here then is understanding. Paul's writing to believers, to the church, and he's saying, you do not wrestle with flesh and blood. You're wrestling with something else, something far greater, something far more um, evil and powerful and you are not watching this war from a distance. You are actually in the theater of war. You are on the front lines. And you are doing battle up close and personal. We have any wrestlers here, by the way? Got one back there. 
I, I bet you if I had you come up here, you could tell us a lot about wrestling. But there's a few things I know about wrestling. I know that you need to be more than just strong. <laughs> you need to have endurance. If you've ever watched a wrestling match or ever been a part of a wrestling match, uh, it's, it's, it's endurance because you can be locked in position for a long time and you dare not let go of the other guy for fear that he's going to turn the tables on you. Um, but you have to have a strategy too. You have to be quick to adjust to the opponent's moves because you, you, it might look like you've got this person ready um, to, to, to pin him down and the next thing you know, you're flat on your back being pinned. You better have endurance. You better understand proper technique, and you better anticipate the moves of your opponent. You have to be able to react quickly. So Paul is saying that that is the nature of our battle. Now, if we go through life, and we're ignorant of that, if we fail to understand who our real enemy is, and that we are engaged in spiritual battle, then game's over for us, for us. So Paul goes on to say that not only do you need to know your enemy, you also need to put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This will be the, the longest section here this morning, and then the last two will close very quickly. But in, in understanding what Paul is saying here, the first thing we need to understand is that it is God's armor that we put on. It's not us going down, you know, to the Army-Navy store, picking out some stuff to put on so we can look macho and go out into battle. We actually have to wear God's armor. We're to put on the whole armor of God. And we have to remember that our enemy is ruthless. He's powerful. He's cunning. And we have to avail ourselves of God's armor if we're to stand against him and withstand his assaults against us. Look at verse 13. Paul writes, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So in this passage, Paul gives us a list of various pieces of armor, but I want you to, un to, to, to notice first the repetition of the word stand or withstand in verses 11, 13, and 14. In verse 14, the word stand is actually in the imperative mood. And what that means is it's a command. Stand. We are to stand firm. We're not to retreat. We're to be strong. In fact, there are four commands in this passage. It's be strong, put on, take up, and stand. So to put on the armor of God means that we are to fortify ourselves 
against the threefold enemy of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Again, these are powerful forces arrayed against us. And we fortify ourselves by appropriating for us the same virtues that Jesus embodied. And our armor here consists of six things, five of which, interestingly, are defensive in nature. Only one is offensive. So let's look at these briefly. First of all, you see we are to put on the belt of truth. Having fastened on the belt of truth, um, if you remember from the video, uh, the, the author there, the writer, described the armor as actually being a picture taken from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah. It's actually a picture of the, mess, of the Messiah, the King of Kings. And in Isaiah 11, verse 5, it says of the Messiah, that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So in borrowing this imagery, it's in keeping with what Paul says that we're to put on what? The armor of God. So the armor that is mentioned in the Old Testament is being spoken of us, and we are to put it on. It's not speaking here of objective truth of the gospel, but the subjective truth that believers um, are to live according to the truth. Now before a Roman soldier put on his armor, he would put on this belt. And the reason for it is very simple, guys. Why do you put a belt on? Keep your pants up, okay? I wish everybody knew that, okay? I mean, because you, sometimes you see people, you see some of these guys that I don't even know why they wear a belt because their pants are down halfway down their butt, you know? And, and, and I, I think, boy, if, if anybody ever tried to mug them, they'd be in deep doo-doo. Because can you imagine trying to run away, you know, pulling up your pants all the time? Well, that was pretty much it here. That they wore the belt so that they could tie their clothes together so that they wouldn't fall down. So that their loincloths wouldn't end up around their knees. And so that they could easily advance or retreat. It gave them freedom of, acts, of movement in battle. It was also used uh, in which to, to hook pieces of armor to and their weapons to. See, when we live with integrity, when we live according to the truth, when we practice truth, we are free to engage in battle. See, the problem is, is that if we're not living in the truth and under the truth, then we're living a lie. And when you live a lie... Satan can use that against you. He can attack you because of your lack of integrity. And you cannot withstand the enemy if you're living a life of hypocrisy. What does the scripture say? God desires truth in the inmost being. And so it's no wonder. This is the very first thing that a Roman soldier would put on would be this belt, this a girdle, if you would. Warren Wearsby said this, a man of integrity with a clear conscience can face the enemy without fear. The girdle also held the sword, and unless we practice the truth, we cannot use the word of truth. The second piece of equipment that he gives us is the breastplate of righteousness. 
The Roman breastplate is an interesting thing. It was made up of uh, plates of bronze or chains of metal that were somehow sewn together on rough pieces of leather. And it protected the entire upper half of the body from, from the waist to the neck. And oftentimes it also covered the back. Again, the imagery is taken from the book of Isaiah referring to the Messiah. Isaiah writes that he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Again, the righteousness that's mentioned here is not the righteousness that was imputed to us when we got saved. But it is a picture of righteous living. As a result of what Christ has done for us, we are now to live righteously. Back in chapter 5, verse 9, Paul said, The fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So just as a Roman breastplate protected one from the onslaught of the enemy, so does the breastplate of righteousness protect us. Satan cannot accuse a believer who's living a godly life. We need to live above reproach. Third item that's mentioned is the shoes of the gospel. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You know, soldiers back then, as well as today, need proper footwear. I, th I think uh, shoe companies are probably one of the most uh, lucrative businesses, even for those people who aren't in the army. I mean, you got all sorts of, you know, you got basketball shoes, running shoes, you know, you've got uh, uh, cleats for football, uh, you've got Crocs to wear at home and to go, you know, river walking and all, you got all sorts of stuff. Well, shoes were extremely important for soldiers in Paul's day. They were given a set of sandals. Now, how would you like to walk around in these things? These, they had sandals that on the underside of the soles were nails, they literally walked on nails, and they had thick heads. Sometimes they're referred to as hobnails, but it was, think of an ancient version of cleats. They used these sandals so that they could get good traction, so that they could hold their ground, and so that they could climb terrain that was very, very difficult to climb without. So... They could travel great distances because of these sandals. And when Paul talks about us putting on shoes that are really shoes of the gospel because it has to deal with proclaiming the gospel of peace, what he's saying is, is that we need to be prepared to go to difficult places. We need to be prepared to stand and withstand the onslaught of the enemy. And what's really interesting here is even in the midst of this imagery of war, we are to proclaim a gospel of peace. Even in the midst of war. I love what Isaiah says. He says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation. The news that the God of Israel reigns. Fourth item mentioned is the shield of faith. 
in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, the Roman shield was roughly four, four and a half feet by two, two and a half feet. So it was a big shield. So big that the Roman soldiers could actually hide behind the entire shield. They could bend down, they could hide behind the shield, and the shield was made completely of wood, and it was covered with extremely rough leather. And they would also have a metal bandings around the shield. Sometimes there was metal included uh, on the shield itself. And what, what is also interesting is that the shields were meant to interlock with one another. So that you could have men on the front lines take their individual shields, place them out, lock them with everybody else's in the front, and that that entire line could move forward like a solid wall. And I think the imagery here is informative for us because I think one of the things it tells us is that we don't fight alone. We fight side by side. The church is not made up of Lone Ranger Christians, but we come together and we form one unified army that fights together. And faith here is not saving faith, but daily faith. Satan may unleash hell against us, but for us, as we trust in the character and in the power and in the promises of God, he will protect us as we do battle. The fifth item mentioned is the helmet of salvation. Roman helmets like their other pieces of equipment were very interesting, made up largely of uh, heavy iron and bronze. And it sometimes had the guards that came all the way up to protect uh, the cheeks. So, uh, you know, you lose your head, game over, right? So the helmet was a very important piece of equipment. You had to protect the head the inner part of the helmet was made up of, of a sponge-like substance to help absorb the blows that you would often get in battle. And nothing short of an axe was going to get through a helmet, a Roman helmet. So the imagery here is that we need God's armor to protect our minds. Because remember, Satan is a deceiver. He is a tempter. He is a liar. So we have to guard our minds in Christ. Satan loves to get us to question God, to doubt his character or his word. And we can only reject his lies if we know the truth. When our minds are renewed by the word of God, we will begin to think the thoughts of God. And when we think the thoughts of God, we will not be easily led astray. Tony Merida, in his commentary on Ephesians, said this. He says, when the devil comes at you and, he, and he's firing these thoughts, these doubts, and all sorts of things your way, he says this. He says, you tell him, I have been saved from sin's penalty. I am being saved from sin's power. And I will one day be saved 
from sin's presence. Say to him, I am alive with Christ, redeemed, forgiven, reconciled, raised with Christ, and seated with Christ. Put your helmet on and do not let the evil one get to your head. We now come to the lone offensive weapon mentioned here, and that is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What's interesting here is at first glance, you know, I don't know what comes to your mind, but what comes to my mind is, you know, those big, heavy swords that you see sometimes in the movies. You know, I, I think of, you know, uh, um, uh, 300, you know, the Battle of Theopoly, and just these huge, massive swords that probably weigh more than, than I do. But that's not the sword that he's talking about here. He's talking about a short sword a small sword, or a dagger. Um, and I happened to have one with me because I like visiting castles. I uh, went to a castle here in Ohio, of all places, and I found a dagger. Um, now, it's not sharp. It's not dull. Uh, I mean, it is dull. It's not sharp. Um, but the Romans carried a big sword, but they also carried a smaller sword. Now, this is probably not to scale, but to give you an idea that they had a smaller sword, and that's the sword that Paul is referring to here, a dagger-like sword. And that's the weapon that we need to learn how to wield. Now, what good is something of this size in battle compared to a long sword? When would you be using this? Up close. Close combat in tight. And this fits the motif of wrestling as well because that is an in-close sport. We fight a close battle with the enemy. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says this, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. When Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted by the enemy, Satan came to him three times, and three times Jesus said, it is written. And he quoted scripture. And eventually, Satan left him. We need to know how to wield the sword of the Spirit. That means we need to read it. We need to study it. We need to memorize it. We need to pray it. We need to proclaim it. But above all, we need to obey it. The Word of God should saturate our lives. So that's the second and the longest point is that we need to put on the whole armor of God. But Paul doesn't end there. He actually, back in verse 10, tells us something else that's very important in our preparation for war, and that is we are to rely on God's power. Verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. See, we need the power of God to be able to withstand the enemy. Never underestimate the power of Satan. 
Don't think you can stand toe-to-toe with him or, for that matter, any of his demons. Scripture makes it very, very clear. And, and, And he's not compared to a lion and a dragon for no reason. These are frightening pictures. But that doesn't mean that we are powerless. It doesn't mean that we cannot defeat him. But we must recognize that our strength does not come from ourselves. It's, it, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the Lord. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know or how much you can quote. Our strength does not, does not come from our abilities or our wisdom. It comes from our union with Christ and in appropriating his armor and relying on his power and his strength. The fourth thing Paul tells us to do, and it's, it's not a part of the armor, but it's extremely important, and that is we are to persist in prayer. Verse 18 says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I wish I had more time to unpack this, but let me just mention to you, there are four alls in verse 18 that we would do well to pay attention to. First is that we are to pray at all times in the spirit. Second, we are to pray with all prayer and supplication. There are lots of different kinds of prayer. We have to pray with all prayer and supplication. And we are to pray with all perseverance. We can't grow weary in prayer. We have to keep alert. We have to be vigilant. And then notice he also says we are to pray for all the saints. Again, the Christian does not fight alone. Therefore, we need to pray for one another that we would remain strong, that we would be steadfast. We are to bring our supplications, our petitions, and our requests to God, asking him for divine protection and strength for one another. And then notice that Paul prays for himself And how he prays, actually he requests prayer for himself. It's interesting to me that he doesn't ask them to pray that he would be released from prison. Sometimes you can learn a lot about someone's prayer life by what they don't pray for. But Paul prays that God would give him the right words, that God would give him boldness to proclaim the gospel. And then he says, I want to proclaim it boldly as I ought to speak. And I think as Christians, I think the same is true for us. We ought to pray that God would give us the words, that God would give us the boldness in the way that we ought to speak. We ought to be bold proclaimers of the gospel. If Jesus has really changed your life, then you have every reason to be bold and courageous. So to be fully prepared for war, we must know our enemy, 
Put on the full armor of God. Rely on God's power and persist in prayer. Paul ends this letter on a personal note. He says in verse 21, we can go to it, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Again, this just blows me away. Here, Paul is in prison. And he's thinking about the welfare of others. He wants them not to worry about him. And he sends them a messenger who will answer all of their questions and tell them exactly how they're doing. But he wants to encourage their hearts. It's my prayer that we will be a people like that. That no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're going through, that we will look out not only for our own interests, but the interest of others that we will seek to put others first, that we would pray for one another earnestly, as Paul describes here, that we will link arms together with one another as we do battle, and that we would encourage and love one another, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I hope you have done more than just enjoyed our time in the book of Ephesians. I hope it has challenged you, and I hope you have found points of application so that you are further along in your walk with Christ now than when you were back in September. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you and I praise you for your goodness and for your mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, for your servant Paul, who just unbelievably has a deep, deep love for you and a love for your people. The Lord, he did not pray for the things that many of us would pray, that I would pray, but rather that you would use him to further your kingdom. Lord, would you give us a heart like Paul? Would you help us to appropriate the armor of God, your armor, that we might be able to stand firm against the wiles of the enemy? And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.